Thank you, Hoover. We are so glad that you guys are here with us. If you are visiting for the first Sunday or uh, online or if you're in the commons, I want to try to help you connect to where we are in our, uh, in our Advent season. We are um, we're studying through Isaiah and we're looking especially at who Christ is and who he was promised to be to us from the great passages that describe him as as the Messiah, as the promised hope. Um, so to us, a child is born today. We'll take us into to Isaiah 9, and we're going to be looking forward into the book of Isaiah in January. We're going to study through May the book, but we wanted to taste Isaiah and get a feel for, for who he is and what he's writing through Advent because so much of what he does centers on this promised child, this promised prince, this promised king. And so um, that's where we are in Isaiah chapter 9. To us a child is born. In just a moment we're going to read Isaiah 9, uh, 6, and 7. Before we do, let me just um, connect this to life for you. I have a friend who is in a really dark place right now. He's in an ugly life-altering, emotionally exhausting place. He does not need me to put on my fix-it hat, and he doesn't need me to lecture him. He, more than anything, what else do you, what do you think he needs right now more than anything else? He needs my presence. He needs to know that the gospel is still alive in someone else, in the word of his brother. He needs to, to feel the hope uh, of the gospel through friendship. Um, he, he needs to know that God is enough right now. That's what he needs to know, that God is enough. And a person who's living in thick darkness and the gloom of anguish, to quote the context of Isaiah 8 and 9, to, 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 to what a person needs who's living in the gloom of anguish and thick darkness more than anything else is the hope of the gospel. People can endure suffocating darkness if they have hope if they have hope. It's amazing what people can endure if they have hope. Getting the phone call that your adult child has overdosed and will, will likely not live, that's a dark night. Learning that your teenage daughter has been violated or abused or waking up one morning to hear your spouse of 20 years say, I don't think I love you anymore. That's when you discover whether or not God is enough. That's when you get to test your brand of Christianity. Is it real? In the book of Isaiah, what I love about Isaiah is, yeah, it is filled with judgment. But what I love about Isaiah is that it is filled with hope as well. It's like the, 
The darkness is when the light shines, right? In the thick anguish and gloom of Isaiah 7, 8, and 9, a nation that is experiencing the very judgment of God Himself, there comes a light. There comes hope. There comes the very thing that my friend and your friend and this broken, dark world, and maybe even some of you are experiencing right now, need more than anything is the light and hope of the gospel. So listen for it. Listen for it as I read 6 and 7, Isaiah chapter 9. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time And forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God, I pray that in these next few minutes, you would help us discover gospel hope. That though, though the darkness might be uh, less imposing for us right now than for some. Some of us are experiencing some pretty thick darkness wherever we are. Would you make this a hopeful moment? Let the light of the gospel shine from your word into our hearts, we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. I want to draw today a straight line for you from Isaiah chapter 9 to the ancient yeah, from the ancient prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9 to the birth of Jesus Christ. And I want to do that with three statements. So Jesus is, uh, this child rather, brings hope, this child is a king, and this child will reign forever. So we believe that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, and that this child brings hope, this child is a king, and he will reign forever. Number one, let's, let's think through the hope that this child brings. The context of Isaiah 7 and 8 is one of judgment and darkness. And so when King Ahaz would rather trust military alliance with Assyria than with God, Isaiah replies with the amazing famous sign of Emmanuel in chapter 7. That God will be with us. That, that, that Isaiah is saying God is with Israel and he will be for Israel, Ahaz, whether you are or not. And so there's this powerful sign that God is with us in Emmanuel. Powerful sign of a child. We're going to come back to that. So chapter 8 ends in thick darkness. In fact, if you'll pick up with me in verse 22 of 8, it says, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, they will be thrust into thick darkness. That ends the dark judgment section, seven and eight. We said there's this judgment and darkness pattern and contrasted with hope and the light of the gospel that we'll see over and over again in Isaiah. In, in Isaiah chapter nine is one of those hopeful passages. It's where the light begins to shine again. And so in chapter nine, verse one, you read, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. 
This is a way of talking about Judah, speaking of her as if she's a, you know, a person. There'd be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. The light comes in verse six in the form of a child. So I, I want to kind of tease that out just a little bit because I want, what I want you to hear is with the child comes hope. When a child is born into a dark scene, what comes with him? Hope comes with him. I mean, every time. This is a universal thing. You see it, you hear about it all the time. When, whenever a child is born, so you, you, see, this in, uh, you see this in classic literature. Think, think Oliver Twist. Think uh, Christmas Carol or Les Mis. When a child is born into a dark, depressing time, what comes with that child? Hope comes with that child. Like a future and hope comes with that child. You see it in, in modern literature like Cormac McCarthy's The Road. You see it there. You see it in, uh, in J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy, which Ron Howard just made into a, a popular movie on Netflix. Uh, that with the child, there comes hope. You see it in pop culture. Uh, in Star Wars, in The Mandalorian, you see it. Hey, protect the child, I'll be back. Right? That's what's going on over and over again. So why does this work? Because, because all of those stories are just a simple echo of the great story that our hearts resonate with. That with a child, there will come hope. In the midst of darkness, this child, is, this child steps into, this child, this, this child is born into a, a dark scene, and with the child comes hope. So this light is not just coming to the remnant in Judah. This light is going to be the light of the world, so that at the end of verse 1, it says, Galilee of the nations. Just mark this, note it, kind of a little Bible study nugget for next time, and you're drilling into Isaiah, and you come back to it. Isaiah is the only person who likes to... Who, who coins this phrase. Among the prophets, Isaiah is the only one who says something like this, Galilee of the nations, or Galilee of the Gentiles. It's kind of a code for him. He's signaling something. He's saying that this Messiah is going to come, and from the region of Galilee, right, that's the place Jesus lives, and he will grow up and live and, 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 and return there and, and preach, and, and that from there will come the light of the nations, so Isaiah is trying to say this is not just for the divided kingdoms of Judah and Israel. This is for the whole world. The light of Christ is for the whole world. And Simeon would say the same thing as he held the baby Jesus up in his arms in the temple to dedicate him. He would say, now I've seen the consolation of Israel. He's the light for the nations. He's the light for all peoples, he says. He's salvation for all people in the world. This child is the hope of the entire world. And what I love about Christmas is we get a chance again to connect the magic of Christmas that we see in children to the magical, miraculous hope of the gospel that can, can happen to us, right, as adults. 
It's not just that Christmas warms our hearts. It's not just that when I turn the Christmas tree on and each morning it's dark outside, I like to be the first one up, go into the living room and step on the button. Pow! Light into the darkness. I love that, right? Why does that get more and more magical every year for me? Because we're going to get more and more gifts? No, actually that's not why. The gifts actually start to taper. What, what happens to me is I'm starting to discover that Christmas is not about reliving my childhood. Christmas is about reliving his childhood. Christmas is about reliving the childhood of the Messiah and the magic of the gospel. So if you can connect the magic of the lights to the magic of the light of lights, the light of the world, that Jesus is actually making all things new, then Christmas can have amazing meaning to you. Beyond materialism and gifts and and, and even good family traditions. Family traditions are fun and amazing and great and, and, and beautiful, but unless they're really tied in faith to the miraculous hope of the gospel, they really lose their significance. Maybe you would discover for the first time this year the, the magic of Christmas, what, what it's supposed to really be. This child brings hope like no one else in the world. Secondly, this child is a king, and that's why he brings so much hope. Because he's going to come, you know, Isaiah's doing this, like writing this in 740 B.C., something like that. So he's looking way out into the future, and he's saying this child brings hope. He, he's he's going to bring hope, and what I want you to understand is as he brings hope, the hope is, is really concrete, like it's, it's real, on-the-earth kind of stuff. He's going to come and bring justice and reign like a king you've never seen before, like you've never known. Notice verse 6, the government shall be upon his shoulder. This is Isaiah's way of saying he's a royal child. He's a king. The government will rest squarely upon his shoulder. He, He won't clamor for it. He won't fight for authority. He will simply have the power and authority and, 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 uh, righteousness to reign as king. And he will do it beautifully. This is a king he's talking about. Isaiah loves the idea, the idea that this promised king will use his power and his authority like no other king. You see it in verse 7 because he talks righteousness and justice. But flip over to chapter 11 because you're memorizing this, right? Hope you're joining us as we're, as we're memorizing 11, 1 through 9 and meditating on, uh, meditating on it, kind of daily meditating on this passage. Look at the king that he describes in verses three through five. This is, again, kingly language. He loves this theme, and he loves to think about the prince, the king, the coming child who would live like this. He says, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He's describing the Messiah. He will not judge by what his eyes see, like you and I do. He will not judge by what his ears hear, like we so often do. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will kill the wicked. 
Righteousness will be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. He wears. Just think about this. Wouldn't you love to have a king who could wear righteousness perfectly? That it would line up with his character, his integrity, and, and the royal, the regalia that he would wear at the ceremony would actually reflect who he is in his heart and soul and leadership. I mean, we long for a king like that. Only Jesus could fulfill this. The government will rest upon his shoulders. And his name will be called, and then you have these four amazing descriptions of this king. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. Say it with me. Everlasting father and prince of peace. These classic lines, right? So these are not just four random names that Isaiah has a vision of and he just kind of pulls them out of the catalog, the registry of God's names. Let me see, I'll take that one that one, I like this one. That's not what he's doing. These are four royal titles. If you don't see them as royal titles in the context that it is, you might kind of get off a little bit on what, how you're reading them. So these are four ways of describing the king. He is a wonderful counselor. He gives wisdom to all who will come to him. All who will come to his throne and kneel down and listen and say, what should I do? He, he will grant wisdom to that person. And we need that because sin makes us wise in our own eyes. Foolish, ignorant, sometimes stupid. We don't live with wisdom. We need wisdom. We need a wonderful counselor and that's why we need a king. We need a king to rescue us from self-sovereignty from I know the answer. I already know this. I, I saw that before. I already know what you're going to say. Have you seen the new anticipation, uh, the commercial where Kyler Murray's anticipating everything Tim Tebow's going to say? I, I, already know, I already know what you're going to say. I already know. I already know. That's, that's, that's who we are. Like, we think we know. We think we know the answer for what to do next. But we don't. And... What we need more than anything is someone to rescue us from our self-wisdom, our self-sovereignty, to help us see the irrationality of our sin struggles and willful disobedience. Maybe you came to Christ because you were afraid of hell, eternal, conscious torment and separation from God. And maybe that scared you to believe in the gospel. That's not a bad thing because I think hell is very real. The Bible teaches that it's an eternal destiny. It's something to be avoided at every cost. So if that's how you came to Christ, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. But since then, have you asked Jesus to be wisdom in your life? To daily speak wisdom into your life? To daily uh, take off of your own shoulders self-sovereignty and place it on the shoulders that can bear the government of the world, his own shoulders? Do you let him speak wisdom into your life daily? Do you, do you let Jesus teach you, like practically, every single day? Do you let him speak counsel into your life? Or do you just kind of live in your own way? He wants to be, he is, he is the wonderful counselor. Don't walk past him. Secondly, he is mighty God. This is even stronger. 
Now, I think what's happening here is Isaiah is by vision of prophecy and foresight and, and just a vision of truth. He's capturing who this king is, and he's making a statement about his divine claim. Like, this isn't just any king. He's, he, the king's actually a powerful, mighty God. We say that because in chapter 10, verse 21, if you fast forward to 10:21, you'll see mighty God, the exact same expression, is used to describe Yahweh. It's used to describe the Holy One of Israel. So we think what Isaiah is doing, and, and the history of Christian thought has kind of settled in on this, he's, he's making a claim for the divinity of the Messiah. He's fully God. So that the creeds will turn around and say, over time, Christians will confess this, he is very God. Jesus Christ is very God of very God, truly God and truly man. Isaiah, by the Spirit, claims that this coming child who is a king is also going to have the might and authority and power of God himself. This must be a description of Jesus. Powerful God. Then it says he's everlasting father. So, this is why the royal titles is important. He's everlasting father. This is not a statement about the Trinity. So much as it is a statement about one person in the Trinity, Christ, the second person of the Godhead. This is a statement about him. So this is not God the Father Almighty. This is God the Son Almighty. And, and he is everlasting father. Now let me explain what that means. So he's not a father who's kingly. He's a king who is fatherly. And there's a big point, a big difference to be made there. Like he's a king. What's being described here is he's a king. He's a king who operates in an incredibly fatherly, paternal, benevolent, lead, care, protect, provide for kind of way. This king that's promised functions like an amazing godly father in his role as king so he's talking about christ not talking about god the father at this point he's talking about jesus christ the son of god who's going to have characteristics amazing fatherly characteristics in his reign and you even see that among the disciples by the way jesus is not just an older brother he speaks fatherly wisdom into their lives now it says everlasting father and this is the cool thing about this. He never stops doing this. His reign never stops. Um, let's just suppose a nation found a truly great president or king. If a nation found a truly great president or king, what would they want to do? They'd want to keep him as long as they could. If a nation found a truly great prime minister or queen, they'd want to keep her as long as they could, right? But term limits in democracy keep us from doing that. That never happens with Jesus' reign. He's not reigning in righteousness and all of a sudden four years is up, eight years is up, 12 years is up. No, no, this everlasting fatherly reign is going to go on forever and ever. So he is the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God, right? He's, he's divine. He's, he's everlasting father. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will rule 
as a king with such fatherly sensibilities. It'll be amazing. And then finally, he is the Prince of Peace. We, we lit the peace candle today. He's the Prince of Peace. You love that line. Why do you love that line? Because every heart wants peace. We're looking for peace. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can bring you peace with God. And he comes in, he begins to change your heart and soul. He brings peace with God. He starts to bring peace with one another. Philippians even says he'll guard your heart, especially as you tend to get anxious and worry about things, which happens to all of us. He'll guard your heart. He'll bring peace. But that's not, that's kind of, that's a really small part of what peace means here. Because in the Hebrew prophets, as they write about peace and shalom, they've got a much grander vision in mind. So, for example, Neil Plantinga will write, the webbing to shalom, peace, the prince of shalom, the administrator of peace and, 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 and justice, he's going to web together God, humans, and all of creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. That's what the Hebrew prophets have in mind with shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Everything becomes like it ought to be. Have you ever had one of those moments where you're like, man, it is just like everything right now is just like it should be. You know what I'm talking about? That's what shalom is. When everything that you can see and touch and hear and smell is all working beautifully, perfectly together. That's the vision of peace. It's, it includes peace in my own heart and soul, but that's a very limited vision of peace and shalom. The prophets write about that happening to everyone, in relation to everyone, and the whole world feeling that, experiencing that, and being made right and restored. Prince of Peace is going to make that happen. Uh, prince, by the way, if I didn't say this just a moment ago, is another word for administrator. Uh, the guy who executes the details. He's going to execute the details of righteousness all over the earth in an amazing, beautiful reign. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. It's so hard to preach during Christmas because you feel like people are just hearing these same lines like wah, 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 wah. Are you with me? Okay. Number three. The child is going to reign forever. Isaiah is not just a, a prophet. He's also a poet. And what I mean by that is he's very intentional about his word choice and his, the structure of his of his writing. So look at verse, the end of verse six and look at the beginning of verse seven and see if you can find the link. End of verse six, chapter nine, verse six, beginning of verse seven, do you see it? He's the prince of peace at the end of verse six. Verse seven says, of the increase of his government and of the peace he will bring. There will be no end, no end to it. 
The child's going to reign forever. He's going to bring in a reign of shalom forever. The forever is indicated by increasing language, right? Verse 7. The upholding language, verse, uh, middle of verse 7. And then, and then the forevermore language toward the end of verse 7. Like, what's Isaiah trying to say? This is going to last forever. It's not going to go away. It's not going to go away. Imagine a benevolent king constantly annexing new territory, inviting countries to come to the table who never thought they were good enough to be part of this kingdom. In the first coming, it's, it's, it's sections like this in the prophets that, that help us see that, that Isaiah probably has in mind two different comings. So that in the first advent, which we celebrate during Christmas, in the first coming, Jesus makes peace with God possible for people. And then he gathers those people into churches, um, little colonies of shalom. Like churches are supposed to be peacemaking, life-giving, flourishing places where, where people are experiencing something that they've never experienced in the world. They experience it in the body of Christ, though. And so in his first rule and reign, uh, the peace of God shows up in individuals. Those individuals start gathering together, sharing that peace, passing the peace, and delighting in the peace, and the church flourishes. And all over the earth, disciples of Jesus are defined as those who willingly take off self-rule and self-sovereignty and put it on the authoritative, worthy shoulders of Jesus and then come under his authority. That's what the church is. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. But not everybody wants to do that. Not everybody's willing to do that. Not everybody wants to experience this. And so there's a boundary right now to his kingdom. His kingdom is alive in people, and his kingdom is alive in churches. But there's a boundary outside of the church as the church seeks to interact with the world we feel that boundary because the world doesn't necessarily want this doesn't know that it doesn't want this don't be mad at them just remember that's where you lived for a long time so there's this boundary between this, these little colonies of shalom that are growing and thriving and beginning to experience God's grace and the world. Watch this. There'll be no boundary one day. At the second coming of Christ, that's the time when there will no longer be a boundary and a separation because the whole earth at that point will become the place he reigns and heaven comes to earth. And shalom expands everywhere. And the prophets love to write about righteousness and justice running down the mountains, just like streams running into rivers, running into oceans, and the whole world is filled with the glory of God. That should sound familiar. So one day, there'll be no boundary to his kingdom when he comes again. Of the increase of his government, there will no, there'll be no end. So the reason we say there's two comings is because Isaiah says, look, this is definitely started. It's, I mean, it's starting with the child, and yet it's going to increase forever. Well, how do you do that? How does it start and increase forever? Well, you have two comings, the first advent and the second, and we're living in the midst of that, in between them. 
One day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and the empire of grace will forever expand. I love the way one writer said this, the empire of grace will forever expand and every moment will be better than the last. Yesterday we were having some fun with one of one of the boys who was celebrating a birthday recently and so we were out in a beautiful place up in Giles County and you know, you have that moment when you're out on a four-wheeler, sitting up on a ridge, looking over the whole world. You're like, does it get any better than this? How could we just keep this going? You know what I'm talking about? You're on a family vacation, or you're at the beach, or you're in this moment, you're having fun, and you're like, how can we keep this going forever? Well, you can't, right? All good things must, they could come to an end. Well, almost all good things, because this thing, is never going to end. He's going to reign forever. And the satisfaction and delight in your soul that you've just been nibbling on in these vacations and these exciting moments and these family experiences that are beautiful will just they're, just, they're just appetizers to the delight we will discover in God himself. Now how... Can we be sure, and how is Isaiah so confident that this is going to happen? Look at the end of verse 7. I love this line, and it's going to help, help us come in for a landing, all right? So we're coming in for a landing here. You ready? How, how, how is this going to happen? The zeal of God is going to guarantee it. What, what does zeal mean? Zeal means energy. Zeal means God's going to work to protect his promise. He's promised to send the son. He's going to send the son. He did send the son. He's promised to send him again in his second coming. He is coming back. The zeal of God guarantees his promises. Whether it's the incarnation of Christ or the second coming of Christ or the promise that your sins can be fully and finally forgiven and that you can know a deep sense of peace and you can stop trying to prove yourself, stop trying to earn yourself, stop trying to merit your way, like you can be overwhelmed by the goodness of God on your behalf. How can Isaiah be sure this is gonna happen? Because God guarantees it. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. You know why you can live, you know why my friend who's living in a dark place right now? Just really just trying to come up like this every once in a while to breathe, and then he's back in the suffocating darkness, and he's like, oh, I got, you, know, you know what's, you know why he can make it? Because of the hope of the gospel, because of the hope that God is enough. Like, you gotta come to that place. God is enough. God will make it happen. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this is a way of saying there's no plan B. This is, this, I'm like, we're banking everything on God. God, you are enough. So to your friend or to you, if you're in this place, in the midst of the darkness, a light is shining. It's the light of the sun, the child who is the promise. He's a king. He wants to bring this sense of shalom and peace forever into your life and into the world. And God's going to 
God's going to do it. The Lord of hosts will guarantee he will make good on his promises. So I want to ask you to pray with me for everybody you know who's in a dark, suffocating place. You might not be in a dark place right now, but you could join me in praying for those who are. So will you, um, and if you need someone to pray with today and you want to talk more about this, that's why we're here. We're pastors, our members, uh, our disciples of Jesus. Anybody in this room would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Christ and entrust our lives to Him in the midst of this darkness. So will you pray with me for each other? Let's pray for one another. Mm. Lord, would you help us to embody the hope that, that, that God will do this. The zeal of the Lord will fulfill these promises. Help us to embody that. Help us to, to just be present with friends who are in the midst of darkness. God, teach us to listen well, not to preach, not to lecture, not to say unwise things that would just discourage people. but give us hope. Give us hope that we might embody the hope and the light that has come to the nations in Jesus Christ. This we pray in His name. Amen. Let's sing about this. Let's confess our faith in song this morning.